This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode of Get Booked is brought to you by Book Riot Insiders. You can bag your bookish perks with a 14-day free trial. Sign up for a monthly or yearly novel subscription and the first 14 days are free. You can wishlist upcoming releases that you're dying to read, get exclusive podcasts and newsletters, and enter to win swag. And the new release index, which keeps track of some really interesting upcoming books, is curated by all the books host Liberty Hardy. So she is here to help you keep track of what you want to read next. So come on in. Your bag of bookish perks is waiting. Go to bookriot.com slash insiders to find out more. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 155 and we are recording on October 30th. I'm Amanda Nelson and I'm here with Jen Northington and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Happy Halloween! I know, we're recording the day before, and this will air the day after, and I'm like a little sad that it won't be exactly Halloween. (laughs) I know, I love Halloween so much. Same. Do you get a lot of trick-or-treaters? No, because I live in an apartment building. Mm -hmm. Um, Last year, one of my local friends and I collected kids' books throughout the year, and she was living in a shared house, so and on a street that did get a lot of Mm trick-or-treaters. So we set up a library on her front steps and handed out candy and books, and it was the best. That's but such a good idea. I know, right? But she moved away from that house and now is an apartment and we like didn't get enough kids books this year. So mm-hmm. instead I am going to watch the little kid parade to the local park for sure. <laughs> and then I have a scary movie plan. I don't know nice. which movie yet, but you know, yeah. What are your boys dressing up as? Um, Rhett is a taco. <laughs> yeah oh and it's a God. good taco costume like i just went and bought one off amazon but it like <laughs> it plays it's real good um and atticus is bowser <laughs> from mario which is still a thing i don't know i don't let them play a lot of video games in my house but when they're with their dad he's like cooler with it than i am so i guess Mario's still happening for kids like that's awesome it was a th- i remember what my first video game system was super yeah. nintendo and we had Mario, but mm-hmm. and I guess Mario still exists. Anyway, he's he's gonna be he's gonna be Bowser. They have like but he refuses re- to wear the mask, so you can, yeah. he just looks like a yellow guy. <laughs> Aww, but he doesn't want to wear I know, the mask. Whatever. I love that there's a taco and a Bowser. That's that's a great combination. Very odd. There's such a weird little duo, and we're going <laughs> trick or treating in my dad's neighborhood because he lives in like a super swanky neighborhood where they mm. give all full size candy bars. Yes, so. full size candy bars. Trick or treating with the Richies. <laughs> what we're gonna do? We used to plan our routes. We would start like in a closer neighborhood, but the ultimate goal was to make it to the full size candy bar houses and then turn around and come back. Smart. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what you reading? I just finished Kingdom of the Blazing Phoenix by Julie C. Dow, which is the sequel to Force of a Thousand Lanterns, which you and I both were obsessed with, if I remember correctly. <laughs> um, and it is super satisfying. It's I, I'm pretty sure this is a duology. Like, it ends on such a strong... And note that I cannot imagine there being a third one. Um, and I love a good duology. And so it is, 
is it, but it, I wasn't quite expecting the time jump. Jump. It takes place like eighteen years or fifteen years, fifteen years after the first one. Um, hmm. And yeah, and you get Jade, who's the daughter of the empress that Shifeng deposed in the first one, um, who's like grown up in a monastery and doesn't know anything about court politics. And then Shifeng is like. Hey, you're going to come back to court because I think I might need you to do a thing, but I don't know what yet. Um, And so then you get this like, then you get the stepmother fairy tale, you know, sort of interaction. And then there's a big quest and there's so many good side characters and there's like lady assassins and there's a really huge ending battle and it is all just so satisfying. It's so satisfying. Hmm. Highly recommend the two of those. They're real good, real good, like weekend, like snuggle up with a blanket and some pie and some tea or your Halloween candy or whatever. And just like <laughs> gorge yourself on fairy tale rewrites, but like set in the far East, like it's amazing. So yeah, real good. Cosine. Mm hmm. What about oh, you? Um, I just finished uh, a memoir financial book. I don't know how to describe it. It's called Meet the Frugal Woods by Elizabeth Willard Thames. Apparently she has a like super popular blog, which I did not know before I got the book from the library. I just liked the title and the cover, so I took it home. Um, and it's a memoir about uh, a couple who live in, in like Cambridge. They live in Cambridge. Um, and they have corporate jobs that they super hate and are, like, really soul-crushing and the worst. So they decide that they're going to live an extremely frugal life in Cambridge in order to save up enough money to buy a homestead in Vermont. Um, and then they're going to move out there and rent, use the rental income from their Cambridge home to, like, fund their life so that they can leave their corporate jobs. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And I re- I like, weirdly, I really have, like, a weakness for... Like, back-to-the-land, frugality, minimalism kind of memoirs, even though I love suburbia and could not be described as a minimalist by anyone with two eyes who's been in my house, like, ever. It's just interesting. You know, it's that anthropological thing of, like, reading about people who live differently than you. It's, like, fascinating. Um, But every time I read one of these books, it's usually super frustrating because these people act like their experience is, like, potentially universal. Like, Mm -hmm. everyone can leave their corporate jobs and buy a 60-acre plot of land in the middle of nowhere and be happy, um, you know, kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, and completely ignoring their privilege. They're all, 100% of the time, white and, Mm -hmm. like, never acknowledge that. But in the introduction, she, like, really explicitly deep dives into the ways in which her and her husband have benefited from institutional privilege and how that has made their lifestyle changes possible. Wow. Um, Yeah, which I'd never, like, encountered before. So I, I just finished it. And I liked it. It is very much not prescriptive. Like, they, she she mentions a couple times, like, we don't make investment maker salaries, um, but we were made able to do this. But, like, he's an engineer making 250 grand. So, like, yes, we do. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, like, she's a good writer. And as a, an experiment in, like, voyeurism, it was, it, you know, interesting to, like, watch how they decided to stop getting their hair cut because <laughs> they didn't want to pay for it because they wanted so badly to move to Vermont. And, like, why would you want to? moved to Vermont that badly I don't know anyway I liked it it was just not um you know don't don't take it as advice I guess is my caveat there 
Alrighty, uh, so how the show works. Like I mentioned, this is a show for personalized reading recommendations. So if you need a re reading recommendation for yourself or your book club or a gift for someone else or whatever, you can send those to us. You can email them to us at getbookedatbookright.com or you can leave your question in the form in the show notes on the site. Either way, if your question is time sensitive, please put it in big letters in the subject line or in the first line of your request if you're using the form so that we can make sure to get to it on time. We might email you back instead of answering the show or answering the question on the show um, if it's time sensitive and we know we're not going to get to it. Or if we have already answered your question on air, we will probably email you a link to that episode so you can go back and listen to it because we don't expect you to have listened to all 155 episodes of this show. Um, okay, so a little bit of feedback. We have two, uh, two people who wrote in to us with recommendations for Angela, who was looking for books that combine tattoos and magic on the last show. Um, we have one reader who suggests the Iron Druid series by Kevin Hearn. The tattoos in that book are what connects the druids to the earth, how they get their magic and shape change. The books take place in modern times. And then they say Oberon is the best doggo, which I've never <laughs> read this book, so I don't know what that means in... Outside of context, but good doggos is always a good reason to read a book. Um, also recommends The Iron Hunt by Marjorie Liu, where tattoos become familiars or demons. Um, and then Elizabeth recommends The Daughter of Smoke and Bone by Lainey Taylor, which has a plot line that involves uh, tattoos and is set partially in the real world and partially in like a fantasy, fantasy land. Alrighty, I think that's it. Jen's going to read our first question. I'm going to talk about our first sponsor, and then we will get rolling. Okay. First question is from Miranda who says, I like books about books so much that I have a whole shelf on my Goodreads called Books About Books About Books. <laughs> I look forward to reading your recommendations for it, but I wanted to put my hat in the ring. So in that vein, the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Society, the Air Affair and the whole Thursday Next series, Mr. Pip, If on a Winter's Night, A Traveler and Cloud Atlas. Alrighty. Our first sponsor is the Knitter's Dictionary. Uh, which is coming out from Interweave. And as a continuously failed knitter, I'm really <laughs> excited about this. I try. I try so hard to knit, and I just am very bad at it. Um, so I need to get this book. This has over 150 illustrations that show you everything from, like, the difference between a beret and a toque to how-to information on how to do really basic stuff, like increase or decrease your stitches. And the knitters out there will know what I'm talking about. Um, it's got cross-references that will lead you to the exact information you need, whether you've come across a new abbrevi abbreviation in a pattern that you don't know the meaning of, or you've forgotten like how to do a long-tail cast-on or whatever. There's extended information on more challenging topics like fiber care and how to make a proper gauge um, and taking measurements to cust like to change patterns, you know, so that the, the sweater you're making actually fits you. Um, so all of this has everything you need to know, important information that no knitter should be without. It's got bonus tips and tricks. You can learn all the do's and don'ts of pattern knitting and how to make patterns and, you know, generally have a more enjoyable knitting experience. So that is the Knitter's Dictionary from Interweave, and thank you for sponsoring the show. Did okay. you did you crochet the hunter's cowl that you made for me? Yes, because oh, okay. I can't knit. <laughs> yeah, I was impressed regardless. For the yeah, record. I made a the the cowl that uh, Katniss wears in the yes. Hunger Games movies. I made one for Jen, and I have I made one for myself. And there are tons of patterns out there for it. Um, the one that I got was crocheting because that's only the one hook. It's so much easier for me to handle than the two needles because mm, mm. I can't do my hands do not work separately. Um, <laughs> They don't. I can't do it. Oh, right. <laughs> so. 
So my first pick for, I'm just keep going, um, for Miranda, for books about books, she lists entirely fiction, I'm realizing, but I picked a work of nonfiction because I liked it so much and it was so cheeky and odd, and it is called Sex with Shakespeare, Here's Much to Do with Pain, But More with Love by Gillian Keenan, and this is part memoir, part like scholarly analysis of sexual masochism in um in Shakespeare, specifically A Midsummer Night's Dream and Macbeth and The Taming of the Shrew. Uh, and it is safe for work, question mark. I mean, I guess it depends on your job. Yeah. Um, but it is, uh, her, her memoir is about how she discovers her, like, personal kinkiness in her own romantic life and the ways in which she's had, like, disastrous relationships when that has come up or, um, or good, supportive, healthy relationships with that has come up. And while she is going through her, like, awakening as a person who has these sexual preferences, um, she is studying Shakespeare in an academic setting. And she's realizing um, that there is a lot <laughs> in Shakespeare that has to do or that implies or can be interpreted as... Um, like, sexually kinky in a lot of his plays, especially The Taming of the Shrew. That was my favorite, um, that was my favorite part of this book, because it, once you read it, you're like, oh, right, yeah, that's exactly what's happening here, and I just never, it never occurred to me, because it didn't, and now I'm turning red. Like, I wish you guys could see me trying to talk about this book right now. I'm, like, breaking out in sweat. It's so weird. It's such a, like, a weird book to recommend, but as far as books about books go, it's so fascinating, because the thing that I love about books about books, and I tend towards the fiction, the nonfiction side of this, is reading about the ways that other readers respond to books that I've loved. And like The Taming of the Shrew and A Midsummer Night's Dream are my two favorite um, Shakespeare plays. So the fact that she takes those two and makes them super personal to her life and then reinterprets them in a way that I had never thought of made it just a really, really delightful, if slightly uncomfortable, <laughs> reading experience for me. So that is Sex with Shakespeare. Here's Much to Do with Pain, but More with Love by Gillian Keenan. I'm going to have to read that. I've never it's, heard of that book, Amanda. <laughs> it came out, it's like kind of recent, like maybe two or three years ago. Huh. Um. Very interesting. Um, I picked a what I consider a classic of this genre, and that is Possession by A.S. Byatt. Um, I fell down a really deep A.S. Byatt like, re reading rabbit hole when I was, mm, I want to say, just out of college. And this one sort of knocked my socks off. And and. I, it's funny because when you, I was refreshing my memory by, because it's been a while since I read it. I was reading reviews and, and some people were so annoyed with the <laughs> book. And I was like, and, and then somebody else was annoyed with the people who were annoyed about it. And I was like, oh, yes, right. This book is not for everyone. But then I was looking at your picks and you've got Italo Calvino on there and you've got Cloud Atlas mm -hmm. on there. So I feel like I am safe recommending this to you because it is a bit, it is a slow burn. Um, which I think to some readers comes off as a slog, but I thought it was fascinating. And it is about these two sort of quote unquote modern, it was written a while ago, so no longer quite modern, but modern scholars, um, modern academics who are specializing in these Victorian poets. Um, and the poets are based on, very loosely based on Browning uh, or Tennyson and Christina Rossetti. Um, 
And so they're like, you know, they're, they're these academics, you know, working on their respective specialty poet. And then a connection between these two Victorian poets is discovered. And so the, um, like the, the academic races on to figure out like what exactly the connection is and what it means for modern scholarship about these poets. Like it's so academic, you guys, but I like get, I, I think I get a kick out of it. I think it's really interesting. Um, and what, what this book then does is you go sort of back to the Victorian poets themselves and you get sections from them. And then there's also references to their poems and the poems themselves, like you don't want to skip them. You want to read them because they have like clues in them. Um, Ah! And and there's diaries and letters and there's lists and there's like references to actual like real poets and not made up ones. Um, And it's so... It's, it is. It's like a puzzle of a book. And, and there's like a budding romance in the modern timeline. And you, everybody is sort of collapsing into like, am I feeling these feelings because this is what I'm being like this is what's being evoked in me by my scholarship or these feelings real um it's very meta it's very twisty turny it's very postmodern i thought it was so fun and so interesting and like just really immersive um but yeah it's like it is a twisty turny postmodern meta thing about academia and like studying victorian poetry so you know if that's your jam like welcome <laughs> to my side of the couch if that's not your jam like that's fine move right along <laughs> Uh, so again, that's Possession by A.S. Byatt. All right. Question two is from Ron, who says, I wrote to you a few months ago for Book Recs to help with my recent breakup, and you delivered the goods. You helped me out of a sad time and reading slump and made me push through. I've decided to go traveling through Europe alone, but armed with my Kindle, and would love some recommendations on solo travel from a perspe- female perspective, slash women taking over the universe, slash generally fierce women to accompany me through my travels. Okay. I picked for you The Electric Woman, a memoir in death-defying acts by Tessa Fontaine, which is a memoir of a young woman named Tessa, obviously, who joins the world or joins America's last traveling sideshow. Um, and it is it has kind of a like Cheryl Strayed's wild element to it where she decides to set off to do this because her mother is very ill. Her mom has um, suffers from like chronic strokes and is getting they're getting more and more debilitating she's becoming more and more ill and so tessa kind of decides to run from it because she just can't handle it so she can't handle like the hospitals the wheelchairs all this kind of stuff so she joins world of wonders which is the last traveling sideshow in the country and the memoir is a combination of her dealing with her mother's illness from afar and like reconciling the fact that she's the sort of person who joins the circus to avoid dealing with her sick mom. Um, and then also her like various shenanigans in living life in, in a carnival, in a traveling carnival. And it does like, she is a woman traveling with a group, but she's also very much by herself because she's a newbie and apparently carnival life is like super hierarchical. I can't say it. Hierarchical. Thank you. You're welcome. Tough one for me this Tuesday morning. Um, and so she enters as this, like, complete newbie. Nobody respects her. She gets all the grunt jobs. Um, and it's a very sensual reading experience in as much as, like, you feel her misery. <laughs> because she's trying, the circuit or the carnival travels during the summer, going from, like, fairs, um, summer fairs to summer fairs. And so and nothing has air conditioning. And she has to spend all day in, in like tents swallowing literal fire. So of course she's like sweating and hot and there's no bathrooms and she has to wash her clothes with a hose. And like, she gets all these bizarre injuries, including, but not limited to being electrocuted a couple of times. Um, 
but she's she sticks with it for the whole season, uh, which nobody expects her to do. And you're watching her like gain the respect and trust of all of these people who exist on the margins of society and in order to, to like make do have joined this sideshow. And like their skills are so inter, like they sword swallowing and, you know, all these really, they, they become celebrities in their own little world. And she is very much like a fly on the wall, um, trying to navigate it by herself as a, you know, conventionally attractive, pretty normal suburban young woman who isn't there because she doesn't have a choice like a lot of these folks. And she's not even there because she's particularly interested in, like, learning how to do um, odd stuff with her body. She's there because she wanted to run away and this was the opportunity that came up. So it's a, it's a really interesting emotional kind of journey, but also uh, watching her, like, toughen up almost through her travels with the, with the sideshow. Um and then the sideshow parts are my favorite because they're just so fascinating. So that's The Electric Woman by Tessa Fontaine. I picked one of my recent favorite memoirs to recommend to you. It is The Guidebook to Relative Strangers by Camille T. Dungy. And she is a poet, um, like a working poet, which is a thing. Who knew that that was a thing? Not me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she uh, – and so she – like her her livelihood comes from traveling around the country doing guest lectures and workshops and all of these things. Um, and then she's also a recent mother. And so she brings her daughter with her. Um, and she is a black woman and, you know, with a black baby. Um, and it, there are so many layers to this memoir. Like there's the part where you are a mother traveling either with your family. There are occasional bits where they're on like a family trip. Um, but mostly it's just her with her daughter. Um, so you're a woman, I think, you know, a woman traveling alone with a baby. Like, how do you navigate that? Um, you're a black woman traveling, which is, you know, a thing that is not always a safe thing to be um, in, you know, America or many other places. Um, and so there's that. And then there's also her nature writing is so good. Oh my gosh. There's descriptions of, I will never forget this one section that's just a description of the different plants in the California landscape. And it's just, it's just so perfect. Um, And there's a section that takes place on a hiking trail where she gets injured. Um, And there's, you know, just different, there's like a, there's a bit in an airport. Like it's so, it's, it covers so much ground and it's not that long. It's like a little under 300 pages. Um, It feels, it felt shorter to me for some reason because I was pulled through it so quickly. And it's just so interesting because, you know, she has some experiences that are sort of predictably terrible but then these beautiful moments of grace happen and or moments of connection just sort of out of nowhere and it's just so good like it's so it's so good um i just really want everybody to read it um and i think it is a rarity in this sort of woman you know traveling genre both because she is a mother and because she's black a lot of these are about white women and so yeah it's like I think it's essential reading if you're interested in this sort of subgenre of you know women traveling so again that is guidebook to relative strangers by Camille T. Dungy 
Is that your persist pick? It is. I wasn't sure if I was allowed to say it or not. Am I allowed yeah, to talk site. about it's it? Oh, site. okay. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So for the Persist Book Club, which takes place on our Instagram, um, I am in charge for December going into January. And this is my pick. So, like, heads up. Get your book now. We're going to talk about it. Come join our feminist book club. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, let's see. Question three is from Christy, who says, I love it when houses are characters in books. Some personal favorites are Jane Eyre, Du Maurier's Rebecca, and The Likeness by Tana French. I've also loved We Have Always Lived in the Castle and The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, as well as The Woman in Black by Susan Hill. Can you recommend some great books that feature houses as characters? Happy to read any genre. Bonus points if it's haunted. What you got, Amanda? I picked a classic also um, for, of this genre, uh, which is The Shining by Stephen King, which you should read even if you've seen the movie because they're not really the same. Um, and The Overlook Hotel is, I think, one of the most famous haunted house. I mean, it's a hotel, but haunted house, haunted buildings, haunted structures um, in literature. And I don't know how much of the like synopsis I need to give you because it's such a like pop culture touchstone, but... A very brief summary is that uh, Jack Torrance is the main character and him and his wife Wendy and their son move to the Overlook Hotel for the winter to be the caretakers. And the Overlook is in the Rocky Mountains uh, in Colorado, I think, um, and is very remote, uh, especially during the winter. It's unreachable by road. You have to take snowmobiles. And so they are hired to take care of the hotel and like just generally maintain the grounds and whatnot during the winter uh, until the snow melts and the season starts again. Um, The bad part of that is that the Overlook is super, super haunted by very aggressive, hostile kind of supernatural forces. And the little boy is um, really sensitive to that kind of thing. He has what's called in the book, The Shining, another character um, calls it that. Uh, And he, you're kind of experiencing the increased haunting through the little boy's point of view. So it has that combination of super spooky Stephen King haunted ghost stuff, um, but also precocious, possibly possessed child which is always super freaky to me i can't deal with it um and yeah haunted topiaries also so go read it it's really really creepy i read it at a really inappropriately young age and have a maintained <laughs> maintained terror of like bathrooms in hotels freak me out a lot mm. still and i read this book easily 20 years ago and i'm still like i'm not going in there I'm not doing that. Do I need to clean my body? I don't think so. I'll be fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Um, anyway, so then there's The Shining by Stephen King. I have friends who have been to the hotel, <laughs> and I just I I can't imagine. I haven't read the the the. Is it a novella kind of? No, thing? no, no. It's a no, full it's, novel. Yeah. Um, I haven't read it, but I have seen the movie more than once. Um, and I cannot imagine stepping foot in that place. But yeah, it's a it. real like the hotel that they filmed it in mm-hmm. is. We have a post on the site, actually, I remember, of a contributor who went and stayed yes. at the Overlook for a couple of nights. And, nope. you know, obviously nothing happened to her that she shared with us. <laughs> hardest, hardest of nopes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, I picked a novel that does have a haunted house, but is not your straightforward spooky novel. It is actually sort of a multi-generational family story. It's The Turner House by Angela Flournoy, uh, which is about a family in Detroit who have lived on Yarrow Street in this one house for over 50 years. Um, the house has seen like all of the children 
grow up and go and some come back. There's grandchildren. Um, and then also the shifting sort of situation of Detroit itself. Um, it's set on the east side. And it was there, you know, when this was still a normal viable place to live. And now, you know, the landscape has changed and, um, but the house is still there. And the aging matriarch of the family is sort of, you know, losing her ability to live alone. And so the grown up children are called home to decide what to do about this in part because the house, because the, this is also taking place when the housing bubble has burst, the house is worth like a 10th of its mortgage. So they have to figure out like, what to do about their mom and what to do about the house. And in the meantime, you're getting these flashbacks to them growing up in the house, which does include a ghost. Um, and it is so good. Oh, I love, I'm a sucker for a multi-generational story. And this is, I think this was a debut novel, I want to say. Um, yeah, it is. Um, and it was so well done. Like, it was it was really beautifully paced. I loved the balance between the modern day stuff and the flashbacks. I also love those, like, okay, everybody's back together. And they don't all necessarily like each other. But they have to make this family decision. And, like, who's going to be the overbearing one? And who's the peacekeeper? And who's going to be on mom's side versus, like, the other side? And, you know, all of those juicy juicy family dynamics and this book really digs into that and then you also get you know the story of Detroit and you get this haunting element on top of everything else like there's just so much going on it's really 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 good um so that again is the Turner House by Angela Flournoy all right our next question is from Sydney who says I'm getting ready to travel to Antarctica in early November and would love some recommendations for books to read either before I go or while I'm there I've read Where'd You Go Bernadette and am about to start Endurance I like to go into an adventure with a good historical and scientific background so I'm open to pretty much anything fiction or nonfiction, that will get me excited for what I'm about to see and experience okay I picked Big Dead Place by Nicholas Johnson um, and this is like, it was blurbed as mash on ice, which <laughs> I am so here for. Uh, and the subtitle is inside the strange and menacing world of Antarctica. So Johnson gets a job as a like grunt, essentially at the McMurdo station. He's a dishwasher. He's in charge of like g- taking out the trash. Um, and he's living, you know, in the U.S. Antarctic program station with all of these really lofty, brainy kind of scientist and he thinks that it's going to be like super educational and he's going to you know revel in the natural the like natural beauty of Antarctica and all this stuff but instead what he finds is like drinking games and really obscene Halloween parties and like sexual hijinks and people who get um what he what's called the Antarctica stare where they if they spend enough time in the station they just will stop talking mid-sentence and start staring off into space, uh, which is apparently a thing. Um, And then there's all this, like, bureaucracy and red tape. Everyone is drunk 100% of the time and super, super bored. So uh, it's this really, like, funny, almost... I don't almost Kurt Vonnegut-ish kind of look at what it's like to live on a scientific station in Antarctica, um, where it's, it's all very, like, dark and twisty... And maybe harmless, but also maybe super not. Because if you goof around enough in a place like that, potentially everyone could die. And it's just kind of, but they like are so shruggy about it. And then he also has to clean up after all these people. So um, it's it's really savage. It's savage, but super funny. So that's Big Dead Place by Nicholas Johnson. I also want to shout out this news story 
that some of our contributors found this morning about a scientist in an Antarctic outpost who stabbed another scientist with a kitchen knife because he got annoyed with the guy for spoiling the books he was reading constantly. And that's all I have to say about I that. did not. So I saw those stories going around. I just saw the headline like stabs somebody, yeah. somebody stabs somebody. And I didn't click on it. It is. It's really because spoiler. Yes. Yes. It's because and it, because he kept doing it. Like every time the guy would pick up a new book, <gasps> the other guy would spoil it for him. And it happened over and over again. And I guess they got into a big fight about it. And then he stabbed him. Wow. <laughs> because Antarctica. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like. A segment from the book that I picked, <laughs> quite <laughs> frankly. Um, I picked South Pole Station by Ashley Shelby, which I'm going to say right off the bat is a is becoming a bit of a problematic fave for me. Um, and the it, it is a black comedy, and, and it's set during the Bush administration. And it, I for some reason when I was reading it, I thought it had been written then because some of the humor feels very... George W. era, but it actually <laughs> came out last year. So now I'm like even more like, ugh, because like, like there's like, for example, there's some misgendering of trans characters who are not on stage, but like, you know, the, it, there's misgendering involved or, um, I don't know. It, I just, I'm like, I, I was just poking at the description to, you know, get myself ready. But anyway, okay. So big caveat for problematic, language and like the black comedy is pretty black um and so it's very dark uh and very sharp um and is not always punching let's say it's not always punching up um but Mm. it's south pole station by ashley shelby it takes place in the amundsen's south pole station which i didn't i like i've heard of mcmurdo i didn't realize Mm. there was another one um (laughs) so there is apparently uh, unless she made it up but i'm pretty sure it's real um and the oh trigger warning uh for suicide for this um so skip ahead if you do not want to listen. Um, but the main character, whose name is Cooper, um, has lost her brother to – he committed suicide. And she is an artist and she's really struggling. Um, and she grew up in a family where her father was sort of obsessed with uh, polar explorations and passed that obsession on to his children um, and has always been obsessed with the South Pole and Antarctica. And her brother um, – like had with him when he died a copy of a book about it um and so she basically signs up for the you know national science foundation's artists and writers program um to go to antarctica in an attempt to sort of like is she looking for closure or does she just need an escape like it's undetermined but she's really struggling and she thinks this is the way she's gonna get over this death um and she's also, you know, she's in her 30s. She was she was acclaimed as like a very young artist and now is sort of struggling to figure out what her career is going to look like. Does she even have a career? So she goes to South Pole Station for all of these reasons. Um, and then the people that she met, meets, as you might suspect, like it's a very like misfit, like Island of Misfit Toys kind of crew. Um, so, you know, there's the new volunteer cook who's like planning on taking over from the resident cook. Um, and there's an astronaut physicist who's like doing research basically to disprove his famous father's theory um and the station manager is a black and gay man who is like the only black man at the south pole um and there's also a – it is set during the Bush years. It is set um, there specifically because there is a climate denier scientist 
who has been sent to the station to do research to like that, you know, the congressional people who sent him there think is going to back them up on saying that climate change is is not man-made. Um, and of course, everybody is, all of the scientists are in an uproar. They're like, you know, sort of like pranking him and, you know, he's an outcast and they're blocking his ability to get to supplies and do his research and all of this stuff. And what's so interesting about this book, and I'm not done yet, I'm about halfway through, is that Shelby is really giving everyone a turn at the mic. And I think what I am, what's hooking me is that I am a little desperate for nuance right now. And Mm -hmm. this book delivers on that. Like she, none of these characters, all of whom could be caricatures of themselves are like they're, everybody gets complexity and layers. And I just hit a section where you start to hear more from the climate change denier guy about like why he's there. And it's just, it's just really, it's really interesting what is happening with these characters. And Cooper is the artist is sort of the main narrator, but you do occasionally get these other POVs and they've all so far been really interesting and have really sucked me in. And then the group dynamics are of course bananas. And one of the uh, people who is there is a sociologist studying group dynamics and you occasionally get her like lab observations on the other people at the station. It's really interesting. Um, And I think also if you want like the mundane sort of nitty gritty details of what it's like to be there, this definitely does that. Like you get all of these, you know, like, and this is what happens when you have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. And this is, you know, what the rooms are like. And this is what it's like when you, you know, don't have ready access to fresh fruit. And, you know, all of the, like the shenanigans that go on about who's dating who, um, And, you know, like I said, it does have some problems. It's very heteronormative for the most part. Um, But it's, I don't know, it's it's really sucking me in and we'll see. But um, so far, I I cannot put it down. I'd like have to know what is going to happen with all of this stuff. So that's South Pole Station by Ashley Shelby. All right, let's see. It is time for our second sponsor, which is Shades of Wicked by Janine Frost. Uh, Master Vampire Ian has made many enemies over 200 years, like you do, including (laughs) Dagon, a demon who now lays claim to his soul. So Ian's only chance to escape is to join forces with a law guardian, but he's never been able to abide the rules for long. Veritas, her normal role is police, judge, and jury to reprobates like Ian, but she has her own axe to grind with Dagon. So she uses Ian as a bait for the demon and realizes his devil-may-care image may hide something more powerful. And meanwhile, Ian discovers that Veritas has secrets of her own. So first there was the Night Huntress, then the Night Prince, now meet the Night Rebel. Um... First introduced as Bones' sire in the Night Huntress series, fans have been clamoring for more of Ian, and now this uh, ruthless and sexy master vampire has his own series. So if you are a longtime Janine Frost reader, you are going to be very happy about Shades of Wicked. If you have not read her, this is a good place to pick up because it's the start of a new series. So again, that is Shades of Wicked by Janine Frost. Thank you for sponsoring the show. All right, let's see. Next uh, question is from Becca, who says Hispanic Heritage Month, September 15th to October 15th, has me wanting to 
to tap into my Mexican-American roots. I want to fill in the gaps of my knowledge, especially in this political climate that tries to vilify these communities. Can you recommend any nonfiction about Central and South America to tap into the complex history and culture? Bonus points if available on audio. Amanda, what you got? Okay, I picked Tell Me How It Ends, an essay in 40 Questions by Valeria Luiselli. Uh, and this is an expansion of an essay that she wrote in 2016 of the same name. Uh, Luiselli is a Mexican author who lives in New York, and she volunteers as a translator for the immigra- immigration courts in New York City. And during her work as a volunteer, where her like main job was to take the 40-question um, questionnaire that people who are going through the system have to answer once they've been caught um, and are, you know, having to go through the court system and determine their ultimate fate. Um, she works almost entirely with children. So she is dealing with the, um, like, that double dose of really, really complicated and heartbreaking stories, but also dealing with people who are maybe too young to understand the questions entirely or too young to um, to answer them properly. So it's really, really like a complex volunteer thing that she's doing. Um, and she's structuring around these 40 questions, like, uh, were you harmed on your way here? Or um, do you know anyone here? Or where are your parents? Uh, you know, the questions that she has to ask these people, she takes, or these kids, she takes each question and like breaks down why they're super complicated and like for the were you were you harmed on your way here question she goes into um, how violent and dangerous the journey is from pretty much anywhere you're coming from in central or south america to get to the um, the u.s border across it um and the risks that you're taking uh and yeah um it's like it's tough for such a short book it's probably not more than 100 pages she really just like hammers uh, a lot of information in a really powerful and moving way into it. And she's not, she's talking about, you know, these people who are coming here um, from countries that are full of like gang violence. And that's, it seems to be the majority of the people of the children that she's talking to. That's the reasons why them and their, they and their families um, fled their home countries and came here is because they were trying to escape gang violence um, and their children or parents had been specifically targeted by drug runners uh, to be like initiated into these gangs. And so they're literally running for their lives. Um, And she talks a lot in the book about our complicity in that situation and how American drug use is the reason why those gangs have so much money and power in those communities. And so like we destroy these communities with our recreational drug use and then refuse to let the victims come into the country to save themselves from it. So it's it's a very nuanced, but also um, she's not like pulling any punches here about the realities of these people's lives and the things that we have done to destroy them and the things that we continue to do as a country to make sure that they stay out of our sight lines so we don't have to deal with the consequences of our actions. So that's Tell Me How It Ends by Valeria Luiselli. This is not my specialty. Um, so I went to the contributors for this one. Um, and I know you said you yourself are Mexican-American, but you asked for Central and or South America nonfiction. Um, and Rincey recommended Deep Down Dark by Hector Tobar, which I do need to read. Um, this is about the 33 men who were buried in the Chilean mine in 2010, which I absolutely 
remember mm-hmm. being stuck to my TV screen and the internet, you know, waiting to hear um, what was going to happen um, because they were down there for almost 70 days. And it was just, it was really intense. Um, and and this is a, a journalist, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who has um, gotten exclusive access to the miners and is not only telling the story of all 33 of them, but also sort of their personal histories and the history of uh, Chile um, because, oh, right, so mine was in Chile. I think I said that, but just in case I didn't, um, in the Atacama Desert. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's, it's, so it is a very sort of specific event sto- history. Um, and it also is about these specific men, but it was actually funny when I was looking through the reviews, some people were complaining that like, Oh, there's too much Chilean history in here. And I was like, I think that's exactly what I want um, to put this in context. Uh, so it's not just the story of these men. It's the bigger picture as well, which I think is uh, really fascinating and that I'm really looking forward to reading. Um, and so, yeah, I thought this might be a good addition to your reading. So that's again, deep down dark um, by Hector Tobar, it is available in audio. All right. Question six is from Alexis, who's looking for a Christmas Christmas present recommendation. She says, my dad loves Sherman Alexi, and not only does he keep telling me I should read him, which no, but I don't think he's read any other Native authors. I'd love to help him expand his horizons in this arena, but I'm having a hard time coming up with something he'd like since our tastes are very different. I love sci-fi and fantasy, but he's not super into that. I read a lot of Joseph Bruchak, some Tim Tingle, and Rebecca Roanhorse. He does not find my recommendations very appealing. From what I can gather about what he shared to me, what he likes about Alexi's writing is his humor and the poignant personal narrative. Do you have any recommendations for books or native authors who fit the bill? Um, okay. Um, yes. <laughs> I picked uh, Crazy Brave by Joy Harjo, which is a memoir that is also poetry that is also weirdly musical. So I listened to this on audio and she sings a lot of the book. So I really do. I don't know if you, you didn't say if your dad is in audiobooks or not. And I'm sure it's, you know, just a beautiful read on paper as well. But if you can get it on audio, it's such an interesting reading experience because her, the lines that she chooses to sing, I think if I had read on paper, I would not have realized necessarily were like poetry or song lyrics or, or anything like that. But her, her voice, it gives it a really interesting complexity. Um, so she is a member of the Muscogee Nation. She was born in Oklahoma at the end of the Trail of Tears, and that is her um, her heritage. And so her memoir is about generational trauma and also growing up learning how to deal with her stepfather who was abusive um, and finding kind of solace in her imagination and spiritual practice and um, like beauty in the natural world and all of these sorts of things. And she, Joy Harjo is a is a poet and a songwriter. So the book is super poetic. And sometimes it's so poetic that I had to stop and be like, wait, what? And like rewind it to kind of figure out what she was saying. But I, I when you get used to like the cadence of her writing and her the way that she like formats her sentences, it it's it's just such a like singular experience her writing because you know I've read a lot of books before that are written by poets and you can tell you know and it's not always pleasant I guess uh, when you're looking for like a straightforward you know I mean like if you if you go into something expecting like a straightforward narrative style and what you get is this like really uh, I don't know 
poetic, <laughs> not straightforward kind of narrative. It can be a little off-putting, or it has been to me. I don't know. Maybe y'all love that. But I did not have that reaction to this. Um, it was not a super straightforward read 100% of the time, especially in the beginning. But once I got used to it, it was just fantastic. And I, I loved it so much. Um, so yeah, go check that out. It's I don't know that I would necessarily say it's got the humor of that Sherman Alexi has. Um, she's writing about a lot of the same topics, but from a much more like transcendental spiritual perspective as opposed to like 13 year old boy perspective. Um, but I think that the like really personal narrative part of this book will appeal. So that's crazy brave by joy Harjo. I picked if I ever get out of here by Eric Gansworth, which I think is a really good comp for what you're looking for because it is sort of dryly funny in parts um it's sort of it is like it's like oh it's it's funny because it's true it hurts a little bit um kind of funny and then it also has it's really it is really poignant and it is a very personal story um it's technically a YA novel but I think this is very crossover I think this is a very adult friendly read it takes place on the Tuscarora Indian Reservation in 1975 um and the main character Lewis Blake who's uh, also known a shoe um is a teenager and he's just kind of living his life which you know includes like his family are very poor and so you know half of the house is sort of tied together with tarp and duct tape and it's snowing outside and so that's not great um and he is dealing with a school a school crush and then bullies um and he just recently uh like has like come become the target of a very specific bully, um, which is making things very complicated. Um, he also has a new friend who is white and whose family recently moved to town with the air force. Um, and it, like it's set in 1975. So like the thing that these two boys are bonding over is their love for the Beatles, um, <laughs> which I like kind of loved. And then also, like his older brother is a returned veteran from the Vietnam War. Um, and so that is very complicated as well. And and it is a teenage narrator, but as an adult reader, like you can see sort of what's going on between the lines, which in this book had a, a lot of depth to it there. So it's like it is a, it's a coming of age story. You know, like how does he negotiate hiding his family's poverty from his new white friend or from the girl that he has a crush on? How does he deal with this bully? How does he deal with, you know, his brother? Um, and all of this stuff but it's it's so atmospheric you feel like you're there and it is so good on the details and it is such a, a poignant story um Gansworth himself is an enrolled citizen of the Onondaga Nation, but grew up in the Tuscarora Nation. Um, and so it's very deeply personal for him as well. So that's again, If I Ever Get Out of Here by Eric Gansworth. And our last question is from Ben, who says, My nine-year-old daughter is a voracious reader. She loved Harry Potter and is almost finished with all of the all of Rick Riordan's novels. What series should she start next? It does not have to be a fantasy series. I'm going to keep going and recommend the School for Good and Evil series by Soman Chainani. It is a fantasy, as you might guess from the title, <laughs> School for Good and Evil. Um, I think it's... It sounds like she's an advanced reader, um, and I think it is comparable in terms of, like, content and jokes to the Rick Riordan, Percy Jackson, et cetera books. So, yeah, it is about um, two girls. 
Sophie and Agatha, who are going to discover, like, will they get sent to, you know, the school for good or the school for evil? Um, and Sophie, who was 100% sure that, you know, like, loves being a princess and, like, glass slippers and is devoted to doing good things. Um, and she's just like, oh, I'm going to go to the school for good. I'm going to graduate and be a storybook princess. And it's going to be great. And she gets sent to the school for evil. Um, and, and Agatha, who loves like to wear black and has a wicked pet cat and hates everybody ends up at the school for good um (laughs) and so now they have to figure out like was it a mistake are they like how do they negotiate all these you know they're they're fish out of water um and hijinks ensue uh so it is a series that plays with these sort of fairy tale tropes in fun and different ways um and there are a ton of books in this series i believe so if she is voracious um there is a bunch more where that came from so again that's the school for good and evil by some Chainani. Okay, I picked the Furthermore series by Tahara Mafi, which I think is the I think the second book just came out, so it's a fairly new series. And this is also also a fantasy series. Sorry, not sorry. Um, about a girl named Alice who lives in a magical world that is based. Uh, the magic is based on color, so everything has vibrant, really, really vibrant colors. Um, people's hair is like really vibrant colors. Everything that they wear, their skin, and their magic is all based on this like color system. But Alice is like silver white her hair is silver white her skin is silver white she doesn't have the same kind of magical abilities as everyone else and as she turns either 12 or 13 i don't remember she's young um there's a you know coming of age ceremony where you in front of your community exhibit your magical powers which she doesn't have any or she doesn't have any that are recognizable to her community so she's dealing with like that kind of embarrassment and shame about her her physical body and how her community views her at the same time she's dealing with missing her father who disappeared three years ago and hasn't been heard from since um and so because she they kind of like need to get rid of her like the community doesn't really know what to do with her they send her into this other magical land that they think her father disappeared into to try to find him And she is given a companion of another kid her age, Oliver, who has magical abilities, but his magical abilities are, like, the ability to lie to people without being detected, so you never really know what's going on with this kid. And so she has to go on this, you know, quest, this, like, Lord of the Rings-style quest with this guy she doesn't necessarily like or trust to try to find her father using abilities that she doesn't have. Um, And it's, it's a very, like confidence building kind of book and the thing that I love about this is that Oliver uh, you know if you read a lot of books for younger kids or even YA where a a girl and a guy go on a magical quest or any kind of quest the the, the male character can be often like super condescending um, and it's almost unconscious on the author's part but I think that Mafia is doing something really interesting in this book where Oliver condescends to Alice and she doesn't take it like she does not uh, let him tell her what to do even though she's the one with no recognizable magical abilities and she's the one who's emotionally wrapped up in the results of this quest like she still manages to keep her story about herself and not about Oliver's feelings or whether or not he likes her or his opinions about what she should do or not do Um, and I like really deeply appreciated that Um, so that's furthermore by Tahir Mafi and that's our show Hooray! Yay! Thank y'all so much for listening. Please go leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to our sponsors for sponsoring the show. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. 
And I am on Tumblr and Twitter as Jen IRL. It's Jen with two N's IRL. And we will see you all next week. <laughs>